Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. O-G. Make some noise! How you doing, everyone? I'm Russ Salzberg, and once again, I want you all to listen up and get a load of this. Smoking Joe Frazier was one of the great heavyweight champions of all time. His three fights with Muhammad Ali, of course, are legendary. But who was the real Joe Frazier? There's a great new book out now by author Mark Cram Jr. that tells us. So like I said, listen up. I mean, really listen up, because you're really going to want to Get a load of this. All right, folks. As I said, the title of the book is Smoking Joe, The Life of Joe Frazier. And I'm telling you, and believe me, I got, there's nothing in this for me. I couldn't put this book down. It is not just about Joe Frazier, the champ. It's about Joe Frazier, the man. And no ifs, ends, or buts about it. Author uh, Mark Cram Jr. here delivers what I call a knockout. It is just a tremendous... I mean, if you love boxing, and especially if you love that era when Smokin' Joe was fighting Muhammad Ali and everybody else, you're going to love this book. So without further ado, let me welcome in author Mark Cram Jr. Mark, thanks so much for being here. I'm delighted to be with you, Russ. Thank you. Uh, listen, I, 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 what I said I meant, when I got the book... Uh, f- from, you know, your publisher. I couldn't put it down. You know, I thought I was just going to skim through it and pick up some things, but it was just, it had everything. It, it, so much so, it even had emotion. So let me start off by maybe asking you a twofold question. Sure. Why did you choose Joe as a subject to do a book? And th- then back end of that would be, and why at this point? Why now? Well, uh, Right. Um, well, I just thought he lived a fascinating life. Uh, he grew up amid the uh, poverty of uh, Beaufort, South Carolina, which in the 40s and 50s was just about uh, as impoverished as any place in the country. There's malnutrition, uh, disease running rampant, uh, and the Jim Crow laws were uh, 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 firmly established down there. And, you know, he just, uh, he, he, you know, when you think of uh, his life, you know, as I started to uh, investigate it somewhat, he—it was almost like he was standing in the bottom of a, at the bottom of a well, looking up at the night sky at the furthest star. That's how far he had to go in life, and he did it. He took the bus to New York at age fifteen, and uh, uh, 
you know, uh, as part of the African-American migration from the South. And uh, was on the wrong side of the law when he was in New York stealing cars and ended up in the gyms in Philadelphia. And just, uh, it's just a fascinating journey, Russ. And, you know, I, and it hadn't been told. Uh, it had been told in piecemeal, but not in any comprehensive way. Uh, and I wanted to uh, uncouple him from his main rival, of course, Muhammad Ali, and tell Joe's story, not, not Joe's story through Ali, if you follow me. Yeah. Also, um, what I found interesting, and, and I guess that's part of you know how you got into this, is that your dad was quite an accomplished writer covering uh, boxing for Sports Illustrated. Right. Dad was a giant in the sports writing business in the '60s, the golden age of Sports Illustrated. Uh, back when Sports Illustrated was sort of on everybody's uh, in everybody's mailbox. Uh, and Dad covered boxing. He covered all three Ali Frazier fights, uh, and uh, really distinguished himself himself as one of the real, uh, true uh, talents of his generation. And um, and you know, I was around it a bit as a kid, uh, but I had no intention of really following uh, in doing a uh, doing a biography of Joe Frazier. In fact, I had resisted it on several occasions. Uh, but at the time, it seemed like. You know, time was passing. Joe had died in 2011, and now here we were in 2016. And I was thinking, wow, if somebody doesn't do it now, who's going to do it? You know, you know, most of the people that were in his generation were dying off, and his closest uh, friends and uh, family. And so I wanted to get to them and sort of put it on the record, if you follow me. Yeah, I, I, I will say this. One of the things that um, you mentioned where he came from, the poverty, the extreme poverty oh my, yes. in Beaufort, South Carolina, and, and reading it, I mean, you know, and naturally, I'm from that era. Uh, you know, To me, that was the glory era of boxing, especially the heavyweight ranks, because oh, sure, yeah. it, it wasn't just... Ali Frazier and the Ken Norton and Larry Holmes after that and, and you know the the guys that they fought Ron Lyle and Ernie Shaver you know you Jerry can go Quarry. Jerry Quarry you can go on and on but what really struck me you know I've I've always said this and you know just from reading your words I think you would agree you know fighters they have to come from the mean streets oh, you, sure, you, yeah. you know you can teach you can teach me to be aggressive you can teach kids to, to, to want it and to go get it. But the one thing that I always say, you can't teach hunger. If you've never tasted it, it's not something that you can go and, and, and lo- know what it tastes like. You know, oh, it, it's yeah. hunger, it's poverty. And, you know, that's why fighters have to come from those streets. But here we were thinking, for example, listen, uh, Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay before that, wasn't brought up, you know, uh, in some great, uh, he had a, he was better off than Joe. Oh, he certainly he's <laughs> compared to Joe. He was brought up like a king. I, I mean, when when you think about it, he was the youngest. Reading your comments, he was the youngest of thirteen children, and he almost didn't make it because his his father. Uh, you, you know, besides working in the sharecropping and what, and you know, was doing some moonshining, <laughs> yeah, and, and a guy comes alongside who was a rival and shoots him with, with, with a shotgun, blows his arm off, and it sprays his mom, who was pregnant with Joe at the time. That's right. It could have been 
uh, he could have been out of the game early at that point. Uh, you know, uh, right? It was uh, the, they were uh, outside of a party, and uh, the, there was a lot of drinking going on, and there was uh, a rival bootlegger, and uh, I think it was a, a scrape over or a, a beef over a woman, and and uh, the guy shot shot uh, Reuben Fraser uh, through through this car window, and. Uh, he lost his hand, uh, and and uh, actually Dolly had a had some a, a, some bullets uh, fragments in her in her foot whenever it got cold. She would or you know uh, when it would rain, she would uh, feel that bullet moving around there. So really, it was you know he was very much uh, on the margins of life. In fact, off the margins at that time, nobody would have given him any chance to to make anything of his life, much less become heavyweight champion. Yeah, but so then, you know, he he gets to New York, uh, as you say, was getting in trouble, ends up in Philadelphia, and um, fast forward a little bit, you, you know, they see that, you know, some people, and Yank Durham, his trainer, they see that there's something there, uh, and uh, they get 40 people, 40 local businessmen, to chip in twenty thousand dollars to underwrite, you know what what would become Cloverlay, which was the group uh, that that backed him, and his career was launched. And the irony of that is, Muhammad Ali had a bunch of uh, Louisville Louisville businessmen pretty much do the same f- thing for well, him. Right, Ali called him his eleventh his eleven wealthy uh, his eleven white millionaires. Yes, uh, that he called him. But but Joe, just to back up just a bit, Russ. He had gotten to the gym when he came to Philadelphia. His, sis, his sister had told him, look, if you get in trouble down here, there's nothing I can do for you. Uh, why don't you go over to the 23rd PAL, the Police Athletic League, and, uh, you know, get to know the police, and, you know, uh, they can help you. And uh, he uh, and he was about 30 pounds overweight, couldn't fit any of his clothes, had no direction. He said, sure, why not? He had to lose some weight anyway. But he got to the gym, and... They saw him hit the heavy bag, and it was uh, one of the trainers who was there that day told me, he said he, it was a, he, it, he hit with such a crack, he hit the bag with such a force, you could hear it across the street. I mean, you know, it must have been like, you know, when you hear uh, uh, Jimmy Fox or Ted Williams hit a baseball, you know, it's a singular sound, and... Um, and it's and you know the the and he had he, so he was good enough to make it to the Olympics. He found his way, won the gold medal, but he had trouble getting going as a pro. He was too small for a heavyweight. Nobody could nobody figured that he would uh, amount to much. You know, he just didn't have the the uh, the the size and uh, and what have you. And of course, the Philadelphians stepped forward. It was almost like a civic kind of investment, and you had to be from Pennsylvania to invest in him. You know, Russ, it was like a stock that was limited to uh, Philadelphia or uh, Pennsylvania residents. George Romney, who was the uh, the Michigan governor and uh, father of Mitt Romney, he loved Joe and he wanted. He was always calling to see if he could, you know, buy some stock or shares of stock in Joe. Couldn't do it. Hmm. You know, you you mentioned his size, and Joe wasn't six feet tall. No, he, he no. was five eleven. But this, to me, I found fascinating 
They were doing, I believe it was for the second Liston Alley fight. There was some kind of phone link up. And, and for you to have this in a book, I thought that was marvelous because I had never heard anything like this. Right. Uh, um, they, you know, they each were having a conversation with Joe, uh, Alley, uh, and, um, Sonny Liston. Right. And he was asking for advice. And Alley, in all seriousness, said to him, you should be a light heavyweight. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I mean, when, when you hear that remark, and then you think of the three legendary fights, one and three in particular, you know, the fight of the century and the thrill in Manila, and you say to myself, you know, this is one tough son of a well, bitch to become a... <laughs> they, Ali said you should be a light heavyweight. But don't you think Russ that Ali was already then beginning the psychological warfare? Yes, that, yep. Yeah, yeah, sort of, uh, he was always trying to get in Joe's kitchen. <laughs> I mean, I guess he did it with all his opponents, right? So uh, he was always trying to put you on the back of your heels that way. Uh, it, it, kind of interesting, though. That, that, that's You, you kind of open up the garage door for me. I, I think he did get into his kitchen, but he got into his kitchen in a way... That when you read it and you read some, I'm not going to say everything that you have in the book, but when you read some of the remarks and, you know, calling a guy, a fellow black man, a gorilla, and you're so ugly and you're this and you're uneducated and stuff like that, uh, when you know the kind of guy and where he came from, Joe Frazier, that is, you could see how that didn't sit well as if, you know, and he was, listen, at a time in the 60s in, in America where the country was divided, his own race, you know, they were going for, you know, African-Americans were going for Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier became the enemy, if you will. Well, it, it's it's very true. And uh, if you recall at that time, and I know you do, uh, people were choosing upsides, uh Based on uh, the race, the draft, uh, a lot of social issues. It became kind of a uh, a test where, if depending upon uh, what fighter whose camp you were in, it told you a lot about who you were. Right, um, uh, Ali. Um, uh, it's a kind of an interesting thing. He was a genius, as everyone knows, of uh, of self promotion. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, he was always, mine was going a uh, hundred miles, uh, hundred miles a minute. You know, how could he promote him, his fights? How could he promote himself? Uh, you he, know, was yeah, he was the yeah. best. He was the best. Oh, he was unbelievable. Bobby Goodman, the, uh, the public, famed publicist told me that, uh, they were down in Houston one time and I forget exactly what fight it was, but he, he, uh, ticket sales were lagging and, uh, Joe, um, or I mean, I'm sorry, Ali, uh, he said, Goodman said Ali would run into his room, his motel room. He said, I got a great idea, right? Well, one day he came in and says, here's what we'll do. We'll pretend I got kidnapped, take me up to a cabin, leave me there three days, and then we'll discover me, and then it'll make headlines all across the, <laughs> the world. Right? Bobby said, well, we can't do that, of course. But that's sort of indicative of how Ali's mind always worked. It was always working. But with Joe, he upped the ante. You know, it got... Uh, racial, it got ugly. Uh, it, uh, you know, I mean, uh, Joe was a, was a big hearted, uh, likable guy. You treat him well, he treat you well, right? That's how it, that, that was how he, uh, that was how he 
looked at life. But with Ali, uh, you know, he was actually always turning the screw. And, you know, with his, uh, I know you remember the scene in the book where he's up at uh, Deer Lake. Yep. And he comes out of the, uh, he comes out of the, finishes his workout and addresses his, the fans that are there, probably about 100 people, mostly suburban <clears throat> uh, white men and women who had come up to see him work out. And he's starting, he says, I am the greatest. He starts his rap. And nobody, they're all sitting on their hands. Nobody's really um, uh, reacting much. Um, and then uh, he starts in on uh, the gorilla. Yeah, and, he, and, and it was it was ugly. I mean, the, what was he? What he was spewing was real. You know what? It was back then. Uh, it, it was disgusting at any time. Oh, oh yeah. And the piece was written a marvelous piece by Nick Cohen, the writer in New York Magazine, which is where I drew the the, the seed from. Uh, the title of the story was Ali Racist. Uh, and, uh, it was full. I mean, I'm just skimming the surface here about what Ali said, but, but what was even more interesting is how the, the fans that were there, the, the, the might, you know, they're talking about Joe being ignorant and, uh, just, it went on and on and on. And you could just imagine how that would play today, right, Russ? I mean, <laughs> I mean, forget about it. You uh, know? I, you, no, it, it wouldn't be allowed today. But I mean, you know, the, the everything from uh, hey, uh, you know what? Just because you mentioned it, I got the book in front of me. Uh, he uh, Gorilla said, "Ali, one more time." He said, "Fraser was so ugly, he should donate his face to the Wildlife Fund. So ugly that mirrors paid him not to look into them." Ugly, ugly, ugly. How could we have a gorilla for a champion? What would the people in Manila think? The people all over the world, that all Americans look like that, that all black brothers were animals, ignorant, stupid, ugly. If Frazier stood as our champion, what would other nations think of us? I mean, that's, listen, that's pretty hard shit, for lack and, of a yeah, better term. And what did the, just read on a little bit, what did the woman in the front row say? I mean, didn't they, didn't they say, Something else, kind of like uh, sick or deranged or something. I forget exactly. De Degenerate, said the Degenerate. Degenerate. Yeah, yeah. Right on, said Allie. Freaks. And, Freaks. And, and uh, the crowd loved every moment, jammed tight in their rows. They rocked and stamped their feet, roared at each new Sally. And when you think about that, and, and what struck me um, about it was, was a couple of things. So here is this guy being portrayed this way. And listen, Ali is Muhammad Ali. He's a legendary figure in America, not just as a fighter, but, you know, humanitarian, what have you. However, I've always said this about Muhammad Ali, that I always called him, I shouldn't say I always, as I got older and then I read a few things, the accidental hero. And the reason I said that, you know, you being an author, I don't know if you ever read it, The there was a marvelous book out, so last year, a couple of years ago, Blood Brothers, the fatal friendship between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. And the two guys wrote it. I don't remember their names, but it's clear as day. Uh, and, um, you know, nobody ever challenged it that, you know, Ali, he didn't go in the draft, not because he didn't want to go in the draft. He was flat out afraid that the the nation of Islam, uh, uh, you know, Herbert, not Herbert Muhammad. Um, Elijah. Elijah Muhammad. 
He was afraid he was going to kill him. I mean, he said <laughs> he said it to Sugar. He was going to fight. He, he it was going to be his last fight uh, before you know being suspended, and he was fighting Zora Foley. Right. And, and and Sugar Ray Robinson, the great Sugar Ray Robinson, knew something was up that he wasn't right. He knocked on his door at two o'clock in the morning. He says, "What's the matter?" He says, "Well, I can't go into service." And and Sugar Ray said, "What? What do you mean you can't go in? It's a snap. You go in like Joe Lewis went in, like I went in. You fight a few fights, you're out, and that's it." And he says, "No, I can't do that." And he was afraid he was going to get killed. And then years later, um, he was in Louisville. And very well-known sports writer Dave Kindred was talking to him, and he said the same thing, that I can't leave because I'm afraid. The quote was, they're going to do to me what they did to Malcolm. Well, you know, his fears uh, were justified. Uh, yeah, yes, they were. The of the times and, uh, and uh, what was going on in the country at the time. Um, you know, there's been a lot of debate and uh, speculation on uh, the whys and wherefores of of uh, Ali's resistance of the draft, um, uh, and I I think that he was improvisational, as improvisational um, outside the ring as he was inside the ring. He would go with a story and 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 follow it up, and if it got a reaction that seemed to be uh in keeping with uh, his um uh, you know how he wanted the things to play out then he would go with it uh if so he was a master at that uh, uh and certainly it it was true with uh with how he treated joe over the course of years and you know joe was mystified by the whole thing uh he just didn't understand you know boxers russ have a fraternity outside the ring you yes know, they, they do may, they may they may uh beat the crap out of each other inside the ring but once they get outside the ring you know they really look after each other and uh and and uh that ali fraser relationship was always kind of in you know ali irritated joe i mean there was that scene in the book where uh in Philly, you know, Ali moved into Philadelphia yes, yep. during his exile, right into Joe's backyard, and he was always showing up, pestering Joe, one in one way or another, in public, and um, but to almost. Go ahead, yeah. I'm sorry. It, no, almost as if he was trying to take over the town. Well, it got to one point where uh, Joe was getting some musical equipment for a gig at the Academy of Music. And uh, out of his trunk, and Ali shows up down, marching down the street with 50 followers behind him, sh- screaming at Joe, uh, shouting his name, and Joe reached for a tire iron. <laughs> he was so furious. Two people who were with him that day confirmed that story. He had, he had bullets. He was sweating bullets. You know, I doubt he would have hit him, but right. I, I think that he uh, He was, was incensed. Uh, he was incensed. He was absolutely incensed by by what Ali was pulling uh, on his, in his hometown, on his home turf. Well, well, to prove, though, your point of that it's a fraternity amongst fighters, though, here he was. Uh, forget, what, what we haven't even got into the ring yet, but here he was taking it on a chin from Ali out of the ring, uh, being, you know, having to take all this crap and, you know, whether it was for show or, or not, you, you know, you know, this was Ali. Listen, let, let let them both rest in peace. Muhammad Ali, 
Hey, he had a lot of P.T. Barnum in him. He knew, oh, yeah. he knew how to sell, and he knew if a sucker was born. But but despite all this, despite all the vitriol that, that he was spewing at, um, at Joe Frazier, when he was on the balls of his ass, down on his luck, when he wasn't making money, yeah. here was Joe Frazier giving him money, cash. Uh. Giving him money to to make ends meet. I, I mean, what kind of man does that tell you that Joe Frazier was? Well, that was Joe, and that was one of the revelations in the book, Russ. He did, did it not just for Ali behind the scenes. If you were, he would uh, he used to carry a roll of bills in his in his yep. sock. <laughs> yes. The love, the you love know, he, that he, he cash like we call it's Gelt, Scarol, Mula, <laughs> this and that. No, him, it was the love. Am I right? Yes, that's right, the love. And uh, if you if he came upon you and you you looked like you needed help, uh, there's a scene in the book early in the book him encountering a man in a, a legless man in a wheelchair. Oh, tremendous! On a, on a cold December day, and uh, I won't. You know, tell the whole story, but how he gets, uh, he picks the guy up, drives him home, and uh, it's around Christmas time, and he peels off a couple, uh, peels off the roll to give him some money. The guy couldn't believe it. You know, uh, but, you know, he would, uh, if you were stranded on the side of the road and um, you had a flat tire and Joe happened by, he would pull over and change it for you. People, he he didn't do that once, he did again and again. I mean, he was a good guy. He hey, he, really... he also never, I, I mean, I guess what made him a good guy is that he really never forgot where he came from. You, you, you know, he liked to hang out at, at a, because he was always into cars. He was into cars, oh, fixing yeah. them himself. He liked to hang out at, at, at junkyards and, and stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. No, but, but he, he knew everybody. He liked doing that. He liked schmoozing, if you will. Oh, yeah. It, it, it was, it was very, he liked being in the neighborhood. He yes, was a he neighborhood did. guy in Philadelphia. He was a man of the people. Yeah. He really was. He, uh, he, you know, and you know, to his credit, Ali was as well. Oh, I without mean, question. Uh, yeah. I mean, Ali was, uh, he did tremendous acts of generosity that the, that the uh, public never found out about Ali. These guys, understand, here's what it is, Russ. These guys, and Joe is in Philly, they understood what it meant to be the champ, Right. Remember what it meant to be the champ back in the back in the day. Oh. I mean, if you had a if you if you had the champ in town, these guys knew how to wear that mantle. You know, you think about today. Oh, well, stop! Don't even you, don't l- even listen, get there, right? T- Tyson Fury fought the other night. Uh, uh, Tyson, who? L- l- like y- you know, the heavyweights today, and I've always said this. The heavyweights today are just big. They're making them like okay, you, you're six foot six, you're six foot eight. They're not the heavyweights that we grew up with. They barely know how to hold up their hands. Right. I, you know, it's, it, it's really kind of disgusting. Well, but the point is that the, uh, to be the champ, that was something. And, uh, you know, you didn't have to go through a PR man or set up an appointment to see Joe. All you had to go is down, down to North Broad Street and walk into his gym. He had all the time in the world for you. And especially young people. He understood what the, he was always grateful to the cops for helping him and showing them the way. You know, he told me the last time I saw Joe, 2009, he told me, he said, you know, uh, young people, kids need to know that someone, somebody cares about them. He believed that sincerely. That's what he lived by. And, uh, so 
he understood what it was to be the champ. He he, he was comfortable in that role. Did you have you you know? Um... Uh, obviously, your dad was in the business. Were you right. were you able to go with your dad to some of Joe's fights? Well, I uh, the first fight was seventy uh, four. I was a seventeen year old kid. I was uh, end of the school year holiday. Dad brought me to New York for the second Quarry fight, Frazier Quarry, and um, you know, uh, so it was the first boxing match I had ever seen live. It was. Uh, uh, you know, Madison Square Garden, what a big deal that was. I was supposed to sit in Telly Savalas' seats. <laughs> I mean, they were going to give me his, his seats, but Telly showed up with a date, so <laughs> I was I was bounced back to the cheap seats. But it was really kind of a great experience. But, you know, I became a sports writer myself. I followed in kind of Dad's footsteps, and I uh, became a sports writer at the Philadelphia Daily News in 1987. So I got to know Joe from then until Joe's death and. 2011. Um, so I was, um, you know, I left the Daily News in 2013, but to write books. But, uh, you know, I got to know him. I got to know how the city responded and reacted to him. And I really felt that there was a deeper story to be told here with Joe. I re- and I'm glad I did. It was really worth the time and effort. Oh, w- w- without question. And again, folks, uh, I mean, we're talking about Smoke and Joe Frazier. The life of Smoke and Joe, the life of Joe Frazier by Mark Cram Jr., uh, who, who is with us now. I, I just, well, look, we, we, we've been speaking about stuff out of the ring. How about right. in the ring? I mean, and th- there's so many, so many fights and wars, but it, when you talk about the, the trilogy, the three fights that he had with Ali, I mean, my goodness. I think what gets lost in all that, because they were so monumental. Listen, uh, a few years back, you know, if you're a boxing fan, for example, there was the um, Arturo Gatti, uh, Mickey Ward trilogy. They were two, oh, sure, th- three yeah. great fights, but we're talking about welterweights, and they weren't champs. You, you know, well, they might were champs at th- different times, but they weren't remotely the best of their era or anything like that they were true just two classic 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 warriors but in and and the other piece of it is everybody had a piece of ali and frazier it was not everybody was watching right 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 yeah And, yeah. and, and but you're talking about three wars of men who were heavyweights oh yeah that's the 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 difference heavyweights listen we can talk about Sugar Ray Leonard and Hearns and Hearns and Hagler and Duran, but these guys were heavyweights. Oh yeah, who didn't go backwards? That's right. That Joe. I don't think Joe took a backward step his whole career. I really don't. He was always coming at you, always coming at you. And I think Ali had fear of him, you know, uh, inside those ropes. Uh, I, I really do. I think. Uh, 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 Joe uh, scared the daylights out of Ali. I, I, Ali, to his credit, was a courageous champion who really knew, uh, who really changed that fear into a to a positive force. But uh, he knew he was in with uh, a really tough guy. Uh, that Joe. first fight, that that first fight, uh, and, and I clearly thought Frazier won that fight. But afterwards, Frazier was in the hospital 
for 12 days. I mean, I yeah. 12 days. And, and as you point out, somebody had reported that he died. And, right. and, and when you saw the look, the lumps and bruises and what on his face, you're saying to yourself, holy crap, this guy won the fight. Well, that's, that's true. Uh, um, you know, uh, one of the interesting pieces of that is the kind of hasn't been really written before was I well, one of the women or one of the people that I had interviewed for this book extensively was Joe's longtime companion who was with Joe during those hours after the fight. Was that Denise Menz? Denise, yes. yes. And uh, she really reports that uh, the kind of shape that Joe was in, uh, it was he was terribly sick, terribly sick. Uh, and just imagine his body had been uh just uh just i don't even know i mean uh pulverized yeah. if you get right down to it and Ali's was as well uh and you know at the hotel people were partying they were partying for 3 days denise told me even the bellhops were drunk you know i mean it was like it was like an ongoing party and joe was just uh a wreck and they did send him down to Philly, and he was in the um, uh, in the hospital. Now, Gene Kilroy, who was Ali's one of Ali's people, gets a call. He's with Ali at a hotel in New York, and and the uh, word is that Gene gets the word that uh, Joe had died, and uh, and uh, Ali was you know stunned. He said, "If if that's true, I'll never fight again." And of course, it was just a rumor, but no, pretty you know pretty. Pretty scary. And, you know, we were talking about now, you know, some people will say, why did he take so much punishment? But Yank Durham knew who was his first trainer and then Eddie Futch, you know, came on board. But Durham knew at 5'11", and, you know, his, his left hook was arguably... You, you could say it might, might have been the most devastating punch in all of boxing. I mean, it, it was uh, just a, you know, well, it, was a sledge, it was a sledgehammer. I, I mean, you're right. I forget the guy's name, but in one of the fights, he literally knocked out his somebody's wisdom teeth. Now, that's not your front tooth. That, that's your wisdom tooth. Okay, okay? I, I mean, and, and breaks jaws and this and that. But but he just. Um, but he, but, but he was a short guy. He 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 was five eleven, and Durham said to him, "If you're going to do this, you got to be in his chest. You you can't be far away. You have to be in his chest." And that's how he fought his fights. All of that's them. that's exactly right. Now it's to Durham's credit uh, that he brought in Eddie Futch in uh, sixty six or sixty seven. I forget offhand, but. Early in the game, uh, Durham didn't know Eddie. Eddie was out on the coast uh, working with fighters in California, and he flew uh, Eddie in, or actually they flew to California so Eddie could have a long look at Joe. They had a few fights, and uh, if it were not for Eddie Futch, I I don't think uh, Joe would have uh, uh, been the fighter that he uh, ended up being. I think Eddie was a a brilliant uh uh, tactician. Yeah. Well, was, Yank Durham died at at fifty two, and then then Eddie took over. That's as right. The main but, guy. but Eddie was picking the fights right. uh, for, uh, for even when Yank was alive. Uh, you know, and uh, Eddie had a real eye for styles and who matched up with who, and you know they avoided a lot of uh, you know potential uh, really tough spots by uh, Eddie's you know smart. Uh, smart uh the way he moved you know moved his fighter through mm-hmm. through this thing 
And they avoided the uh, elimination tournament, remember? Back yes. in the 60s, uh, they had this elimination tournament to pick a champion. Uh, Jimmy Ellis, who was yeah. who was an alley sparring partner, ended up winning that tournament. He subsequently lost to, uh, not subsequently, he, he got cold cocked by Joe. Oh, my God. Well, you know, there was a lot of pressure on Joe to, to, uh, to participate in that. And Yank Durham and Eddie said, well, you know, what's the point of that? You know, we're already highly ranked. And the ranking, the uh, the uh, uh, the boxing organizations held it against. The, they dropped him in the rankings, but people knew. I mean, Joe was a New York fighter. He was a he was a he was a house fighter at the Garden. You know, John Condon, or uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, who's the box? Teddy Brenner. Teddy Brenner, right? They had uh, 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 adopted Joe, uh, and he, he fought. Quite a few of his early fights at the Garden, and he had a big following in New York, and um, uh, so there really wasn't any point to him getting involved in that tournament. Yeah, it, it, you know, let, let's fast forward just because I don't want to say dull, but of the three fights, the middle fight with Ali Frazier, uh, that was fought in a television studio. <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But 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 the the thriller in Manila. And, you know, it's all legendary. And, oh, yeah. you know, Ali Saini was close to death when it ended. And, and, you know, people questioning, you know, why was the fight stopped? Because Ali was ready to quit. You never know. But but the thing that struck me, and, and he was furious, um, just furious was Joe that Eddie Futch would not let him come out for the 15th round. Uh, oh yeah, and just furious, and he sure was. And then you, you you give us some information in the book, like you know Eddie Futch cared about his fighters, but you know he loved Joe, but also Eddie Futch saw seven guys, seven guys die in the ring. That's exactly right. Oh my God, I got goosebumps just even repeating that to you. Yeah, he he, he saw seven guys die in the ring, and listen, that was at a different time going back. And he wouldn't let he wouldn't let Joe come out. That, that well, was it. He, he liked Joe. He, he not only liked Joe. Uh, he liked you know Joe had a family. He had uh, beautiful children, and uh, uh, you know he had something to live for. And you know, it didn't make any sense to Eddie that he uh, should should uh, imperil himself because remember, Russ, Joe couldn't see out of either eye no. by the end. I mean, he had had for years. He had had problems with uh, people. Never knew cat- the, the the cataract. Yeah, that he had it in his eye. I think it was his left eye. I, I, yeah, I'd yes. have to check the text, but it was like uh, one. He had uh, congenital cataracts in one eye, and then his other eye was closed up just from damage. So he was actually uh, he was feeling his way uh, around the ring, trying to listen to how Ali was breathing, and so trying to find him by. Can you imagine through, it? Through hearing and just they, you know, he uh, and I don't buy the fact that Ali was going to was ready to quit. I know he, uh, Ali, he, I, I don't. He, yeah, people say that. I I tend to agree with you. Yeah, Ali had said something uh, later that he was going to quit, but I don't think uh, in the moment. I don't think he would have. I don't think Angelo Dundee, his trainer, would have let him. Yeah, it, it, the the whole 
that tr- as, as you say that that trilogy as people called it you know of Ali Frazier you know and of course there were so many other fights you know Foreman uh, the George Foreman fights um I think Joe Frazier was made to order for George Foreman. Oh, my God. You, you know, yes. re- really, you know, there are, you, you've heard it say fighters are made for fighters. Like, like if you said to me today, I think if Ally and Norton fought all the, a, a bunch of times, they would always go to distance. It, it was just, there are styles for certain styles. And obviously, Joe was made to order for a guy who was a bomber as well, who was bigger and stronger and taller. Sure. You know, um, very interesting. You, you know, well, the first, the first Foreman fight, uh, uh, Joe had, uh, Joe had down in Jamaica with him when he lost the title. Right. He, he just wasn't, he didn't have it, uh, he, his head wasn't in it. I mean, he was, he was, it was a big family reunion down there. They were all sitting by the pool and, yeah. uh, having a good time. And Joe was running off the nightclubs and, uh, and, uh, he just wasn't, Eddie was looking at him in the gym and, Joe was training with Ken Norton, who uh, at the time who was on the up, it was coming up, and uh, Joe wasn't handling Norton very well. And 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 Eddie said, "What am I seeing in there? What am I missing?" And Norton told him he's just not himself. So, you know, it's he just wasn't uh, ready for 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 uh, Foreman. And even if he had been, I think George would have would have handled them. Yeah, I mean, you know, like you say, uh, to me, there are fighters for fighters, and George was just, you know, too big and too strong and too oh, tough. My, yeah. I, I, I w- actually uh, saw the second fight at the Nassau Coliseum when he fought, um, w- when Frazier fought uh, Foreman, and I'll never forget, he came out and he had his the hood over his head, Right, and then right. he took off the hood, and there was this bald head, which <laughs> yeah. you hadn't seen before. Like you know, it didn't do him any good because no, that, that head got banged pretty good. The, the, the book is marvelous, and, and but one of the things that really got me, and we can go on and on, the, 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 folks. I can tell you this: there are so many things that Mark Cram has in the book, including, listen, his, his he loved women. He had 11 kids by a bunch of different women. He had his wife, Florence, who was married for years till, till they got divorced. He had, and it was almost like he had other families. Yeah, but but well, he, he always took the responsibility of making sure all those kids were taken care of. He sure did. He sure did. They didn't want for anything. No, no, no. But so time goes on, and um, they had. There was this famous thing uh, uh, meeting at the 2002 All-Star Game um, with, with, with Ali and, and, and Fre- Joe Frazier where they were sitting together. But the night before, the night before the game, uh, Ali's wife, Lonnie, invites Joe to dinner in their hotel suite, and he has uh, Marvis, his son, who Marvis, you know, was a fighter at one point. Marvis was an ordain, is an ordained minister. Yeah. He, he already was. So uh, they go up, and when they're leaving, well, I, I shouldn't even say this, not, not when they're leaving, but um, when they go walk in, and they see each other, and they hug. Yeah. And, and Ali's crying on yeah. Joe's shoulder. And Lonnie said, he's finally at peace now. I mean, I'm, I'm just getting choked up hearing yeah. that because 
you know, it was almost like, yeah, Ali realized what he did to Joe. Well, you know, one of the questions I had for everyone I interviewed, Russ, was, you know, did Joe carry his grievances about Ali to his grave? I was, um, uh, you know, Joe in the 90s, uh, he really was a very embittered man. Uh, there were a lot of things that he said uh, that just, uh, you know, it wasn't a good look for him, the way he yeah. carried on this uh, uh, this grudge, um, uh, what seemed to be a grudge. So I was curious about that. Uh, you know, uh, did he put it to rest? Where did they put it to rest? Ali was always reaching out through third parties to sort of, with an olive branch, but uh, Joe was it wasn't good enough for Joe. He wanted Ali to come to a man to man. It turns out, you know, I asked uh, everybody, as I say, and uh, some people who knew Joe for years said, "There's no way that Joe ever let this go." You can't say to a man what Ali did to Joe and and have it be forgiven. And now other people uh, just as uh, strenuously argued that that Joe didn't have hate in his heart, that he uh, was, that uh, that he that he indeed let it go. And I think that the final scene in the book sort of puts an end to that discussion, don't you? Oh, listen to me. I am telling you, uh, well, well f- first of all, y- you kind of s- set it up because it, it jumped off the page. This one thing jumped off the page at me, and, and if you will... Uh, yeah. it, it's real brief. I'm going to read it. Um, okay. He, 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 when they were leaving the hotel suite, okay, Marvis, you know, they, they suggested, Marvis suggested, let's uh, all hold hands and say a prayer. And he's about to say a prayer when Joe says to uh, Marvis, I got this, son. And he goes on to say, dear Lord, we have forgotten and we have forgiven Please heal this man because he has given so much to the world and he has grandkids and babies and it's time that he really can enjoy his life. So please do whatever you can to make this man right again. Shoot. Yeah. I've got chills. You just reading it. Yeah, I, I, I'm telling you. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it was like whether Joe and, and I kind of agree with you. I don't know if Joe ever truly forgave. But Joe was big enough to say, this guy's got his own problems now. This is the right thing to do, so I'm going to do it. Well, yeah, that's right. We can't get inside Joe's mind and you know, because his feelings about Joe always waxed and waned, didn't they? I no. mean, one moment he'd be going after him with a tire iron or threatening to, and the next minute they would be uh, seen in public, uh, you know, uh, you know, doing some sort of promotional thing. It was hard to ever know really where Joe was with Ali at any given time. Uh, But it's my feeling um, that uh, I think that he, I think that scene and that, and that really sort of indicates really where Joe's heart, heart really, really was with this whole thing. Yeah. I, I, I tend to agree. Uh, the book is Smokin' Joe, The Life of Joe Frazier, written brilliantly and beautifully by Mark Cram Jr. Mark, much success. I cannot thank you enough for being here. I, I could I could talk for hours and hours. <laughs> just, just a wonderful job. Well done. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. 
All right, folks, and I want to thank all of you for listening, because that is now a wrap on today. So, uh, again, thanks for getting a load of this, and now i like to get a load, of you, a load of you. So let me know your thoughts. You can let me know on Twitter at Russ Salzberg, on Facebook. You can also visit my website at russsalzberg.com. Thanks again to Mark Cram Jr. Thanks to uh, the big man, Crash, who takes care of me, Mike Caragliano, Tim Einickel, the old... G Podcast Network producer of mine, Dave Labrosi, 77 WABC program director, his outstanding assistant, Matt Dahl. And last but certainly not least, you guys and gals out there, because without you guys and gals, I'd have nobody here to be talking to. So until next time, it is Ira Salzberg saying to everybody, bye-bye, so long, and farewell. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.